0: Uh, we have a guest preacher this this morning. This is Bryce Smith from the Sonoma Avenue Church of Christ up in the Santa Rosa area, and so Bryce is going to be our preacher today. And um, he comes here with his wife Nisha and their two sons Zeke and Jed. Right? Awesome. And so we're just blessed to have you this morning. I'm just going to pray over Bryce, and then we'll uh, he'll take it from there. Heavenly Father, thank you for your servant Bryce. God, as we come before you this morning to open your word and to listen for the message that you've prepared through him, through his life experience, and through his uh, faith, God, I just pray that you would um, use him as your mouthpiece, that you would give him the words to speak, and that it would be your Holy Spirit leading the way. God, uh, we lift up this offering to you as two fish and five loaves, and we just pray you multiply it. Be with our brother Bryce this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, good morning, everyone. Uh It's nice to be here with you today and uh, I'm I'm grateful for the invitation that Jacob and Justin asked me if I would come and and share with you a little bit about my story because my story is fairly unique and it's not one that very many people get to tell or have experienced in the same way that I have. But before I can really sort of get into the meat of that, I want to tell you a little bit about myself first. Uh, I'm from Fresno, California, grew up there. Uh, I'm a triplet, and uh, my, my parents uh, went to a, a local church there in town, and I was basically, feels like I was basically born at the church building. Um, my, uh, my parents are, are a little bit older. They're 81 now, and so we were surprised late in life. I have a brother who's about 18 years older than me and a sister who's about 15 years older than I am. And so when we were kids, different families in the church kind of adopted us and, and took us into their homes. And so I very much grew up with the church, with faith, with God, all being a really formative part of who I am. And there's, there's an idea, a question that I, that I like to ask people a lot. Lynn Justin has heard me ask this question. And, and it's an idea that I wrestled with early on, but I didn't really know I was wrestling with it. And, and the question is this, does God want you to be strong, or does God want you to be broken? Now, this is not a trick question, although it certainly seems like it is. It se- because the answer to this question appears to be so obvious based on what we read in Scripture, based on what we talk about and how we treat one another and what we understand, we have this understanding that God wants us to be strong. And I understood that growing up within the church, that I was to be the best Christian, the best disciple, the best follower of Jesus that I could be at all times and all places. And so growing up, I... Did just that. I mean, I know some of you feel like you were the perfect child, um, but I was. So I mean, if there is a competition as to who actually was the best child, I, I can promise you that I'll win that. But there was a there was a particular reason why I lived my life that way. And the reason why I lived my life the way I did, the reason why I avoided mistakes and failures, the reason why. Uh, I tried so hard to do the right thing in all places at all times is that I was terrified of failing. And in fact, I would tell you now that I did not really know how to make a mistake. Oh, I made mistakes. I made them fluently. But I didn't know what else to do with a mistake when I made it. And so growing up, I, I, I was living sort of under this Shadow of being the perfect kid. You know, I was one of those kids like when when I was like 13 or 14, adults would call me wise. True. They just didn't spend enough time around me, but they called me wise. Um, And I presented myself at all times as someone who really had everything figured out and everything together. I was a leader in my youth group. I was a leader at my high school in terms of faith and Christianity. Uh, I was recognized for it in multiple ways. I, I went to Pepperdine. I got, this is true, like I got two awards for being a Christian at Pepperdine when I graduated. Um, I was someone that people admired and looked up to and respected. I became a youth minister right out of, of college. and. Um, I I was successful as a youth minister, and from there I moved into preaching, and from the outside of my life, it would seem that I had so many things figured out, and that I was living this kind of life that was so in line with who God wanted me to be, and who I should be, and what you should be as a Christian. And to a degree that was true, but it was not the whole truth. It was just a part of what people saw. The whole truth is that I have struggled with depression for most of my life. And I was first diagnosed my junior year of college. I didn't realize that I was depressed at the time, but I went home uh, for Christmas that year, of my, my junior year of college, and uh, I was getting ready to head back to Pepperdine and my parents took me aside and they said, something's wrong with you. And I was like, well, thanks. I'll see you at our next break, too. <laughs> and they said, no, like, you haven't, you haven't really spoken to anyone the whole time you've been here. And you, you haven't carried a single conversation. And you're not looking at anyone, and, like, something's wrong. And so they said, when you go back to Pepperdine, find a counselor, go to the counseling center. So I did. And I went, and I, I spent an afternoon with one of the counselors, and she told me you're... You're depressed. And immediately there was this relief that sort of flooded over me. Uh, the diagnosis gave me some some sort of relief about that there was something going on. And, and, and I kept my depression pretty much at this very manageable stage for several years. But at the beginning of 2014, my depression deepened unexpectedly. Um, and I had been to see a, a therapist in the previous year, and I had been going to therapy, but then I stopped. And then when I went in 2014, it got bad enough to where my therapist uh, decided that I needed to go on medication. So I met with a psychiatrist, and we, they put me on some medicine and, and tried to figure all this stuff out. And while medication helped for a while, I steadily began to feel like something more was wrong throughout that year. Now, at the time, I was preaching at the East Side Church of Christ uh, in Antioch. And on October 30th of that year, I woke up and the only way that I know really how to explain how I felt is to say that I didn't know who I was anymore. Uh, I mean, I I knew my name and I knew where I was living, I knew all those kinds of things, but I kind of almost wish it was amnesia because amnesia would have been better than seeing everything around you that you know and love this life that you've built and not understanding how it's you and how you got to that place and why you feel the way that you do now. And I knew, because I'd always known, who I should be. But the problem was I was not that person anymore. And from that moment, seemingly everything in my life came into question—my work, my faith, my marriage. Why i had made the choices I had made, whether I even wanted to be who I was anymore. And I and I wasn't sure at all what was me and what wasn't me. And this is one of the. This is hard to explain, but stick with me for a second, if you can. Um, I looked back at my life, and it felt like when I looked back at my life that I had made all kinds of decisions. I had become a minister, I had gone to Pepperdine, I had done all these things, but looking back on everything, I couldn't decide, like literally could not decide, whether I had made the choices that I had made in my life because I, Bryce, wanted to make those choices, or if I had made the choices that I made in my life because someone expected me to make that choice. Had Had I done all of these things because these were the things I was supposed to do, and the things that people wanted me to do, or had I done these things because this was some sort of expression of who I am. I was completely and utterly disoriented. I could not even decide whether I had married my wife because I wanted to or not. There is a really negative stereotype that goes along with depression. Uh, This stereotype has been around forever. I feel like it is breaking down a little bit. Uh, But it does still exist. Depression, some people think, well, you know, depression is really just being sad. And so, stop being sad and start being happy. Some say that there really is no such thing as depression, that it doesn't actually exist. That depression is really just, like I said, it's just kind of like a mood, right? And If you give her enough time, get enough sleep, Exercise, eat right, you can just sort of push it away. Uh, Or or maybe some people think, you know, well, if they really wanted to feel better, they would. And and still others say that Christians, in particular, should never be depressed. Because they have Jesus. And if you have Jesus, then depression is something that you should never uh, have to deal with. But here's the thing, depression is a mental illness. It's a chemical imbalance, an altering of how some people see the world. It is real, and it is dangerous. And one of the real struggles that I had was that I knew I was not supposed to be having the doubts and fears that had come in and made a home inside of my head. I knew what answers I was supposed to give to these challenges, what methods I was supposed to use, what hope I was supposed to find, but there was a major, major problem, people, and that is that none of those things worked. I know, I know, I'm not supposed to say that, but none of it worked. I wanted it to. And I tried to get these things to work, but none of it worked because I had reached a point where the answers I had always given or the methods I had always used no longer fit who I actually was. I didn't know where to go, I just knew that where I had been as a person, as a Christian, as a father, as a husband was no longer enough, and the problem was that as I began to share – keep in mind, (laughs) I'm the minister at a church. As I began to share with people what I was thinking, as I began to share with my Christian friends, with people in my church that I trusted what I was thinking, they simply did not know what to do with me. Because what do you do with someone who is feeling this way? I, I was hurting and confused, and people cared for me the best that they could but I could see that they felt a great pressure, they felt a great pressure to push me toward what they thought were the right answers. And so I would lay myself as bare as I felt was safe to do. I would share with them things that I knew were uncomfortable for me and for them. And I opened up to someone about what I was going through and I, and I explained you know, just the struggle I was having about You know with my faith and and with my relationship with my wife and with all of these different things and he was very quiet and we got to the end of this discussion and it was i basically just told him i don't know what to do i don't know what to do and what he told me was this he says well you have some choices to make but if you make certain choices you're cutting yourself off from the christian community forever Well, that really doesn't leave me with choices. And he walked away, and I was left to just sit there and deal with this enormous weight that was just dropped on me. And in that moment of deep-seated confusion, it seemed like I had to decide in this moment whether I was in or out. But to me, everything was gray. It wasn't black or white. And if I could have made a decision one way or the other, I I probably would have, but I was unable to. I didn't have an answer, but an answer was being forced on me. And he gave me this advice because he does what we all do when we face people who are going through something that we don't understand, or we are with people that are going through something that we can't fix. And that is, we jump to the resolution we believe that God wants, but we ignore how much space there is between what we think God wants and where the person actually is. It's like telling someone to go to the moon to deal with whatever's wrong. Well, they'd love to if they just had a spaceship. So... This is the pressure that we feel, and he felt that pressure, and we had that conversation, but I was left. But I wonder about this. Why, why does this happen when we, we have conversations, spiritual conversations with people who are in the middle of crisis, or in the middle of depression, or in the middle of things that they can't, they don't have answers? And, and I think it's in part that we have trained ourselves as Christians to think of the bottom line. Now, we would never call it the bottom line. But it is instead, it is representative of how we think. We want things to be black or white. You're either in or you're out. You either believe this or you believe that. You either this or you were that. You were this or you are that. And we want people, this is true, we want people who find themselves in the middle of chaos, we want them to find resolution as quickly as possible with God. And we want them to find resolution with God through the ways that are most comfortable to us. Have you prayed? Have you read your Bible? Are you going to church? Are you doing these things? We want people to do these things, and we want them to work. Because if these things work for them, then it confirms all that we know about God and faith and how things go. But if they sit there across from you and they say, I have prayed, I have done this, I have, and I still feel this way, it frightens us. It frightens us. Because what is the answer then? As people of faith, we are supposed to keep our faith in God through even the greatest. Crises and we push ourselves to see God's purpose immediately, even when we feel like we are drowning. But what happens when life, when circumstances get in the way, what happens when our understanding of things and how our relationship with God works is no longer sufficient to give us answers? I cannot tell you how many people sent me, asking it shall be given to you. Seek and ye shall find. Knock and the door shall be open to you. And I wanted to scream at my phone every time I got that text message. And say, don't you think I've asked? Don't you think I've not? Don't you think I'm looking? Don't you think that if I could choose to not feel this way, to not be so lost, to not be so hurt, to not be this person that I don't want to be, don't you think I would choose that? I want you to hear me very clearly this morning that I do believe we should cling to our faith. When all around is falling apart, God is there and he is still a loving and gracious God. But for those of us who are maybe helping people out, who are in the crisis or in depression that we're not in, we have to understand that when when I was depressed, when I was in this place, I could not see God. As much as I tried, As much as I worked at it, I could not find him. He could have walked in the door and said, hi, I'm God. And I still would have struggled with it. What happens? What happens when the Band-Aid, these spiritual tools and things that we have, what happens when the Band-Aid we are trying to slap onto a person in crisis doesn't cover the wound? What happens when the treatment that we give doesn't begin to address the depth of where they are? It's a scary question. And what most often happens, I think, in communities of faith is we give the prescription, ask, seek, and knock, pray, worship, do these things. And if those things don't work, well, whose fault is it? Whose fault is it? Well, it's not God's fault. And it's not my fault, because I'm supporting you. So if that doesn't work for you, then guess what? It's your fault that it doesn't work. I was unable to give answers that we are so accustomed to giving. I was unable to say what others wanted me to say, never mind what I was going through. My inability to fall back on the standard answers, it made people uncomfortable. It made me uncomfortable. And I felt like, as a minister, I had to give the right answers right then for things that were going to take time for me to work through. And I couldn't do it. I couldn't do it. And so out of this came this great pressure and confusion and loss of self and despair. Because here's what was happening. And and, and no one really knew that they were doing this to me. But as the person who was depressed and couldn't figure anything out and was struggling, I didn't have a lot of options, as I said earlier, and I'm crying out to God, I'm not hearing anything, I'm asking for clarity and guidance and sense of self, I'm not getting it, and so, but everyone is still saying, this is what you need, and this is what will work, and this is what God will make happen, and I'm struggling with it, and so I'm I'm left with only two options. Number one, God isn't listening to me, if he's there at all. Or number two, I don't have enough faith. So I need to try harder. But if you've ever been depressed, you already feel like a failure. And so trying harder doesn't really work. And out of this place where I couldn't give what I wanted to for the first time ever, I thought about and planned out how I was going to kill myself. and. Uh, On November the 30th of that year, I got into bed, I took out a notebook, and I started to write a letter to my son, Zeke, apologizing for all my failures and everything that I had done wrong and all these different things. And I was about halfway through it, and I began to wonder just, like, what am I doing? And I, I tore it up, and I talked to Nisha in what was the worst conversation I have ever had with anyone, to where I laid all of my feelings bare in front of her. And I told my wife that I didn't think I loved her anymore. We hurt, we suffered. And while I wanted to be strong and healthy, I couldn't deliver and I couldn't say the things that I knew I should say. I knew it was a misrepresentation of who I was. And during that time, in the span of about three weeks, I lost 25 pounds. By the time it was all said and done, I lost about 40. we struggled, I took time off, I went to counseling, I tried to find my bearing, and on December 18th of 2014, I completely fell apart. I lost control of my emotions, I was on the floor of my living room, curled up in a ball, crying uncontrollably, hitting the ground, and so I took myself to the emergency room. And there was one other woman in the emergency room who was probably in her late 60s. And It's a big emergency room. And I sat down on the bench about probably six or seven seats away from her. And she was so uncomfortable with how I looked that she got up and moved to the other side of the emergency room. And I went back and they talked to me, I was there all day long, and they decided that I didn't have to go to the hospital, but it might be a good idea for me too. So with my permission, they 5150'd me, put me in an ambulance and sent me to Oakland. And I spent two days in a mental hospital there. Since then, I've grown stronger and more steady, but by no means am I healed from the illness of depression. One of my favorite songs uh, is by the band, the Abbott Brothers, and it's called February 7, and the chorus says this. There's no fortune at the end of the road that has no end. There's no returning to the spoils once you've spoiled the thought of them. There's no falling back to sleep once you've wakened from the dream. Now, what does that mean for us this morning? Like, great, Bryce, you went through that, super. And here you are, and what do we do with all of this? Well, this is the important question, you see. The important question is, what do we, as people who love Jesus, and have been loved by Jesus, what do we do for those who are suffering with mental illness? What do we do with those who are lost and feel like they have no place to go? What do we do with those who can hardly express how off track their life has gone? What do we say? How do we handle them? So I wanna give you some ideas this morning. And the first one is this, if you are going to help someone who is in the middle of depression, you need to break away from how you think things should work. In John 9, uh, Jesus encountered a man who was born blind. And the disciples see this dude, and their question is, well, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born this way? Because they look at him, and they look at what was going on in his life, and the only answer they could come to was the fact that well, someone must have done something wrong in order for him to end up this way. And what Jesus says to them is, neither this man nor his parents sinned, but God is going to do something today that is going to speak to who he is. Paul's a fascinating guy. Like, really, his story, the story of Paul coming to serve Jesus, is bananas. It's one of the most dynamic stories that we have in the bible and he went from killing christians to being the top gun of the early christian movement going out and being the head of the spear going into places and preaching jesus and he was personally converted on the road to damascus by jesus and he became so powerful and so influential but i love this passage if you have your bibles uh, open up to second corinthians chapter 12 verses 6 through 10. He says, even if I should choose to boast, I would not be a fool because I would be speaking the truth, but I refrain, so no one will think more of me than is warranted by what I do or say, or because of these surpassingly great revelations. Therefore, in order to keep me from becoming conceited, I was given a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness." Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses and insults and hardships and persecutions and difficulties for when I am weak, then I am strong. And here's what I love about this, and this is what I mean when I say we need to change how we think. Paul had it all as an early Christian leader. He had it all. He was doing the right things, saying the right things, going out and doing these amazing things for God, but there was one major problem. The one major problem was that he was in danger of forgetting what he once was, which was away from Jesus and not a part of Jesus. He was in danger of believing that he was the one that was making things happen, that it was somehow his greatness, his intelligence, his his power of personality that was driving forward the gospel. And so understand this, God gives him a problem. He was given a thorn in his flesh, a messenger of Satan. And so he's got this problem. We don't know what it is. It's never revealed. But he does what we do, what we should do. God, will you take this problem away from me? Because if you take this problem away from me, I will be able to serve you better because I will not be broken. I will be what? Strong. And this weakness is keeping me from being strong. So God, remove it from me so that I can be strong. And what does God say? I love it. He says, no. He didn't say maybe. He doesn't say later. He doesn't, you know, close the door, open a window. He just says, no. He will not take it away. Why? Because this thing that Paul has to wrestle with reminds him of what? That he is broken. And when he remembers that he is broken, when he remembers that he's broken, He relies on the strength of God and not his own. And so God says, no, I'm not going to take this away because I love this. Are you ready? He is a better Christian broken than he is strong. He's a better Christian broken than he is strong. And he's an even better Christian when he knows he's broken than when he thinks he's strong that is so against our thinking. I think we don't like it for lots of reasons. It makes us uncomfortable because none of us wants to be broken, none of us wants to be these things, but we see it so clearly here, that in this great part that we admire and look up to and think is so amazing, God had to remind him it's not you, it's me. It's not you that is making this happen, it's me and you the powerful Paul who's doing all of these things, you are not the one who's pushing this thing. It is me working in you, and you need to remember that it is Jesus in you that is making you powerful. And I want you to know something. This is the compelling story that all of us have to tell, whether you've been through crisis of anything or not. The compelling story that this world needs to hear is not how good you become when you become a Christian. The compelling story that this world needs to hear is that I am profoundly messed up, but that God loves me, and that Jesus came to die for me because I am profoundly messed up. And he did it knowing how messed up I am. He sent Jesus to this place to die for me, knowing that I needed him. And the fact that God loves someone like me, would use someone like me, would redeem someone like me, is a story of hope that other people need to hear too. Because you know what? They are broken and messed up as well. And Christianity, unfortunately, has presented itself over time as being this collection of perfect people. It should be the complete opposite. It should be the opposite of that that we are not strong and perfect people we are broken people and because we are broken we live under the love and grace of jesus who saves us and makes us more amen we live under the love and grace of jesus who saves us and makes us more that story is compelling and that story is the one that people need to hear The only good thing about me is God. When they see me, they should see failure. But if they see God, then the story can change. Because I am weak, I am broken, but through my brokenness, God is strong. So, I'm going to wrap this up here real quick. But there are some things I want to share with you about depression in particular, and about what my church and my wife did for me that are, are truly miraculous. Um, so, number one, uh, mental illness is an illness, period. Okay, uh, it's like heart disease or diabetes. You wouldn't tell someone with diabetes to stop taking their medicine and just start praying, right? It doesn't. It doesn't make sense. Um, so. Mental illness comes from genetic and environmental sources. We don't really know always what triggers it. Uh, It can be any kinds of different things, but it is a disease. It is a chemical imbalance in your brain that can be treated in a lot of different ways. Now, number two, this one's important. Uh, Just because you have been depressed before, or just because you know someone who has been depressed before, it does not mean that you understand the ways in which someone else is hurting. Um, For example, with depression, people can, it can manifest itself in a million different ways. One person may sleep all the time. One person may not sleep at all. Uh, someone may eat all the time. Someone may not eat at all. Someone may gain weight. Someone may lose weight. It can, it can formulate in all kinds of different ways. And, and so understand that depression has lots of levels, lots of manifestations, lots of different ways that it shows itself. And you have to be open to that if you're going to help people uh, get through something. Um, number three, having a mental illness is not sinful, nor is it uh, necessarily caused by sin any more than disease uh, is caused by sin, any more than diabetes is caused, any more than these things. Now this, this is important, <laughs> okay? Um, do we do things sometimes in our lives that are against the will of God? Yes, we all did something this morning that was against the will of God at some point. From the time we've woken up today, all of us have sinned at least once. And so we do these things. And sometimes are there consequences to those decisions? Yes, absolutely. Sometimes do those things, can they build up and cause a depression or something? Yes. It but there are some people who will actually say, you know, your depression is a sin. And then they'll turn to the verses that I've already shared with you and turn to others about don't be anxious, don't do this or don't do that. But understand this, depression is not caused by sin. There is something that is going on within someone that needs to be addressed beyond just you did something wrong, so let's fix that. Uh, Some people need medication to be better, and that's okay. There is a gross misunderstanding that you go on depression medication because you're sick, And you're not better until you go off of it. Like That's the sign of being better. And so many people that I've talked to that struggle with depression, their goal is to get off medication. I can't wait till I get off medication. Now some people may be able to do that, and it will be great. Like if they're able to get off medication, that would be a wonderful thing. But that is not for everybody. Because if you have a chemical imbalance in your brain that the medication is fixing, and you go off of it, what it could very likely happen. The imbalance is gonna manifest itself again, all right? So if people need to be on medication, that's okay. And getting off medication is not, is not the definition of health when everything uh, is said and done. And I would, you know, I, I would say, because here's, and here's the other issue. When we make getting off medication the definition of health, What happens when they get off the medication because they think they're now healthy and then they relapse? Like the amount of failure that that just sort of compounds one on top of the other is difficult for people to deal with. So getting off of medication is not a sign that you're better. Um, Do not try to fix someone who's depressed. They're not a broken toy. They're not a car that's not running. Don't try to fix them. you know, we often fall into this sort of pattern of, you know, if I were this person, then I would. If I were in this situation, then I would do this. And this is what we often give to people and, and, and teach them and people who are depressed. Well, have you tried this? Have you tried exercising? What about yoga? You know, have you, what, you should go gluten-free. Oh, no, you should go vegan. Like, these, these things are going to fix what's wrong with you. But don't try to fix them. When we think this way, we put people on an imaginary timeline based on what we think we would do, which then translates over to what they should do. And it's imaginary. You should be feeling better by now, because have you done this, this, and this? But those timelines don't exist. Particularly with depression, it can take years for someone to ever uh, get back to themselves or to feel uh, like they're more themselves again. Uh, People who are going through real crisis are going to get better on their own timing. And I want you to understand this, too. When we say, have you done these things, you should be feeling better by now, I'm really uncomfortable with the fact that you're not better by now. You're not only putting a timeline on that person, but you're putting a timeline on God. That God should have acted and done this and fixed this for you by now. Which, again, can cause a crisis of faith within the person that you're trying to encourage and help. And we don't do any favors when we act like the answers to someone's depression are uh, obvious and easy and simple, like just do this or just do that. We don't have the answers to their hurt. They are not a problem to be solved or something to be fixed. So I'm going to tell you to do something and you're not going to like it. When someone comes to you and they're depressed and they're laying their hearts out in front of, a, in front of you and, and they're just hurting and struggling. Don't give them answers to their problems. This is what my wife did for me. My wife, who I sat down across from and said, I don't think I love you anymore. Do you know what she did during those next several months? She just lived with me. She held me when I was crying. She hugged me when I needed a hug. We slept in the same bed the whole time. She didn't kick me out, she didn't leave me, even though other people told me, or other people told her that she should. She stuck with me. She didn't offer me a single answer the whole time. She was, she simply loved me and was my companion through the worst time in our life. And she saved my life. Because if she had left, I would be dead. Now, that goes against our thinking a little bit, I know. Because we want to help, we want to do, we want to give answers. But I understand this. When someone is hurting and broken, when they're suffering, when they're depressed, when they're going through these things, when they don't have answers, they don't need someone else to tell them what to do. Instead, what I, they need is for someone to be willing to walk with them where they are. And to not leave them. And to not put these expectations on them as to what they should do and what healthy looks like and who they should be. And my wife did that for me. My church did that for me. This is remarkable, people. My church gave me three months off and allowed me to come back as their minister. They didn't know what to do with me either, okay? When I was. They gave me the time off. People were very hands off. They didn't know what to do with me either, but they loved me. And they checked in on me every now and then. And they allowed me to come back and find my way back to a person who understood God differently and better. The last thing that I want to say to you this morning, and I know I've kind of been all over the place, so I apologize for that. The last thing I want to say to you this morning is this. We serve an unimaginably unimaginably big God who is capable of more than we know or understand or, the Bible says, that we can even imagine. We cannot imagine what God is capable of. And sometimes God works through things very quickly. Sometimes God works through things over years. But the promise that we have is that God does work. And I want you to know, I am standing in front of you today because God was faithful to me. But there was no blinding light on the road. There was no moment of transit. There was no click point where this just happened. It happened over time and with great patience and love and care. But I am grateful That God is not a God who comes in and fixes everything. I'm grateful that God is a God who comes in and redeems everything. He redeems everything. He was able to take this thing that happened to me, this out-of-control emotional mental state, and he was able to take that and make me into someone that I like better now. Someone I like better now. And that someone is someone who is wildly broken, a failure in so many ways, someone who is going to keep messing up, someone who is going to struggle with depression for the rest of his life, someone who is going to have days that are good and days that are bad. But no matter what's happening in my life, no matter what is going on, I have a God who loves me, who created me who gives me purpose and reason and meaning outside of myself. I have a God who walked with me when I was so sick that I didn't want to live anymore. I have a God who today allows me to stand up in front of people and say, it's okay to be broken and it's okay to hurt. And it's okay to not understand. And it's okay to not have all the answers. And you don't have to find the answers in the next ten minutes. You don't have to know what they are and what to do. And God is probably not going to ride in and make everything better tomorrow. But he's still here. He's still here. And in spite of the broken and ugly place, <laughs> world that we live in, he promises us hope and life beyond this place. Something better. Something more meaningful. Something more beautiful. Something deeper. And this message is the gospel. That's what the gospel is. That. God loves this world, that he loves the broken people in it. And that he doesn't go in and change everything and make everything perfect. No, he goes in and redeems it. He takes what is broken and gives it new life and new purpose. And I love that message. Amen? Amen. Thank you for letting me share with you this morning. I'd like to invite the praise team to come up. I'm going to pray for us here as we finish. If if anyone would like to uh, talk to me uh, after, after church, you're welcome to. I know there's a, there's a prayer time set up also. Um, I want you to know that God loves you. And no matter where you are, no matter what's happening in your life, that God, God is still there. And I'm grateful that we have a God who's a redeemer. Let's pray together. Tell me, Father, you are so good to us. You give us more than we deserve, more than we should have. You love us in ways that are hard to understand, God. God, we're afraid of the idea of being broken. We're afraid of not having answers. We're afraid we want things to work. We want them to work out. We want to be able to find stuff. But God, there are times in our life where answers are not ready where solutions are not right in front of us. God, there are times where we lose hope and there are times where we can't find you even though we look. And God, in those times where we are so lost, God, I pray that you would surround us with people who would love us where we are, who would encourage us, who would walk with us. And God, I pray that as we go through those times and come out on the other side of something, God, that we would see how great your redemption is. For you love and redeem and care for the broken. God, may we not be afraid of being broken, but may we understand that when we are broken, that your strength becomes all the greater in us. And may the message that we take to a world that is broken be that you love them, and you want something better for them, too. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.